Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're so excited to have Christine Matthews on with us today. Uh, She is the head of Bellwether Consulting, and she is a Republican pollster that I've worked with on projects before. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christine. Oh, so glad to be with you. So tell us a little bit about your firm and some of the clients that you've worked with. Uh, we, You and I have bumped into each other in Indiana where I've done some work. You've done some work. That makes you a bit of a pen spurt. I don't know if that's a word, but maybe it's a word. Maybe we can coin it today. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, clients that you've worked with in the past. So with my company, Bellwether Research, I have worked with um, a lot of clients from Indiana. I'm originally from Indiana and um, did both of Governor Mitch Daniels' campaigns. Still work with a lot of clients there, do a lot of Indiana polling. In the 2012 uh, cycle, I did polling for DePaul University in Indiana and Howie Politics. And nationally, I um, worked with John Kasich this election cycle and work on a lot of issues and policy for a lot of issue and policy clients. My other hat that I wear is as a partner of Burning Glass Consulting, which is an all women Republican consulting firm where we focus on women voters. So I kind of wear two hats, but I'm, I'm wearing my bellwether hat right now so we can talk about Indiana. Great. Okay. So let's talk about Indiana. I mean, what I thought was pretty striking from the, um, the, coverage of the Pence pick was, oh, this is going to really help conservative. Conservatives are really mollified now. You saw some folks saying that in the, you know, kind of man or woman on the street interviews yesterday in the first day of the convention coverage. Um, But he's not, he wasn't doing very well in his state. Can you tell us what you found? Sure. Um, You know, the last time Indiana sent a a candidate to be the vice presidential nominee. I was actually working for the Indiana Republican Party, um, and uh, that was 1988, and it was Dan Quayle. And Dan Quayle was the U.S. senator from Indiana and was hugely popular in the state. Later, you know, in the campaign, he sort of got this reputation of being a lightweight, you know, when he misspelled potato and said a mind is a terrible thing to lose when he was trying to say, you know, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Anyway, (laughs) right. So, but none of us thought he was this lightweight. I mean, he, he was really, really popular. 
Now, Mike Pence is not similarly situated. He, um, you know, he started out in 2012 when he was elected in a, a closer than expected race for uh, governor. He won by about four points. Mitt Romney won the state in 2012 by 10 points. So it was it was closer than expected. He started out well enough, um, inherited a state from Mitch Daniels that was going really well, uh, sort of focused on economic issues and had an approval rating that was sort of heading into the 60 percent range. So things were going really well. Then about a year ago, last spring, uh, March um, of last year, came the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And this was basically um, seen as an attempt uh, to discriminate against the LGBT community. Huge backlash from the business community in Indiana, from suburban Republicans, from what you would call the Mitch Daniels wing of the Republican Party in Indiana. So, you know, his approval rating, we were doing polling, dropped by like 20, 25 points. Right now, he sort of sits at a net yeah, was disapproval. Was that across the board? Was that with Republicans and independents and Democrats or just yeah, Democrats what, and independents? No, it happened with Republicans, too. And it happened with, you know, your basic – we've got these um, vote-rich counties, suburban counties surrounding Indianapolis. They're called the donut counties. And that is, you know, basically fiscally conservative, somewhat more socially moderate or at least um, – uh, not not on the radar screen kind of voters, and those are the ones the Mitch, what we call the Mitch Daniels Republican types that that really um, uh, were turned off, and the business community. I mean, huge companies like Angie's List or Eli Lilly in Indiana uh, came out very strongly against this. So um, that was a real real problem. And then in an attempt to sort of fix it, he went on and uh, interviewed George Stephanopoulos at the end of March, which was a disaster. Because George Stephanopoulos wanted to ask him, you know, should someone be able to discriminate against someone who's gay or lesbian? Do they have to bake the wedding cake? Do you think that's right? Anyway, Pence never got around to answering that. So it was seen as a huge embarrassment. So people from Indiana are very proud of their state um, and want to see it represented well, don't want to see it as some sort of backward place. So, you know, the Stephanopoulos interview was seen as a huge embarrassment. And in fact, if you go to the website trump-pence.com, someone has bought that and it goes right to the Stephanopoulos interview. So that's not very helpful. Yeah. In terms of introing. There were lots of, I mean, obviously there's lots of procedural failures of what's been going on with the Trump convention. I mean, this is, you know, day one is over when we're recording this and lots of people are talking about the Melania speech. But one of the things that was, uh, uh, that people were talking about a few days ago was all the different online steps that the Trump campaign skipped in their VP rollout. And one of them was buying up all the websites they didn't buy any of the Trump.Pence combinations out there. Lots of them were gone. So all kinds of groups snatched up all kinds of different combinations. Oh, absolutely. And Just, never Trump. I mean, every group got in there and was able to get one. That's how how easily that, you know, they were able to do that. How many holes were in that particular part of the process? Well, and not only that, they lost two to three critical days in terms of introducing Mike Pence to the American people. So the Clinton campaign and her and the Democratic allies basically came in and produced a one minute video. Let me introduce you to 
you know, Mike Pence, which basically portrayed him as anti-gay, anti-women, anti-Planned Parenthood, and anti-immigrant. So they lost that too. Um, you know, people don't know outside of Indiana, probably people don't really know who Mike Pence is. You know, I was basically sort of outlining how even in Indiana, he's still, he's a very polarizing um, a figure and in fact was in no way reassured of reelection in November. Um, the same Democrat, John Gregg, uh, who ran against him in 2012 is running against him again, was running against him this year. And I had not had Mike Pence above 41% in any of my polling. And that's with a sample of maybe plus 10 Republicans. So it was, it was a real referendum on Mike Pence that really wasn't looking very good. Right. And I mean, that's the thing that I find interesting. I mean, you know, Pence was not, I mean, he wasn't kind of out there like a happy, my sense is like he's a happy warrior, just, you know, devil may care, just, you know, even if it sounds unpopular, just sort of charging ahead with his positions, however extreme, he seems like trying to have it both ways. And maybe that's why he wasn't particularly popular. I, I mean, I guess what I find confusing is how all of this translates to, oh, he's going to be a real asset to Trump on the ticket. That's the part that, you know, I, I don't see from the poll given he's not very well known nationally he's net unfavorable nationally to the extent he's even known he's not popular in his home state you know where's the asset part come in so there are solid reasons to pick mike pence given the last three that were standing but what mike pence doesn't do is he doesn't expand the tent at all um he doesn't appeal to women voters or swing voters. What he does do is bring some level of comfort to members of Congress. Speaker Paul Ryan, I think, feels like he can work with Mike Pence uh, were Trump to be elected president. And um, also, you know, nationally, I think um, evangelicals, social conservatives who might have been wary about Trump, although in the 60 Minutes interview, Trump sort of implied that he didn't need Mike Pence because he won the evangelicals. But anyway, um, if there were some evangelicals that Donald Trump had not convinced, uh, Mike Pence is someone very, very solid nationally, you know, in that community. It's not any kind of expansion, um, you know, outreach uh, pick somebody who's going to attract new people to the fold. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, but so let's talk about that. I mean, you know, well, first it's not only that he's not, you know, I guess there's this argument that he mollifies Republicans. I, I don't, you know, he, he, he's not doing well in Indiana, which is a, you know, a pretty Republican state. It's hard for me to see the case that he, and he's not well known nationally. It's harder for me to see, the case that he's going to somehow magically appeal to evangelicals and Republicans around the country if he's, you know, just doing kind of mediocre to bad in a Republican state. I mean, he, Paul Ryan can't help Trump win the not, you know, win the win the presidency. I mean, he's got to be able to not just appeal to Republicans, but, you know, folks outside of that, you know, Republican base. And I'm not sure I'm seeing the data that suggests that Pence can do that. And then when it comes to expansion, Trump has so much damage that how can Pence 
you know, who's not doing very well in his home state even make any inroads in that, you know, gaping black hole that Trump is finding himself in? I mean, what do you think? I mean, you're trying to reach out, you know, to have Republican women. I mean, what do you think about Pence or Trump and their ability to reach, to expand or even just keep the ground that Republicans have made? Forget about expanding, just holding their holding their own. Yeah, you know, it's been very difficult. I, you know, as I said, I work with John Kasich. So my position on Donald Trump is, is John Kasich's position. It's Mitt Romney's position. I'm, I am not a supporter or a fan of Donald Trump. That's, that's my position. So, you know, it's difficult for me to see, and it's quite frankly difficult for me as someone who has tried to focus on attracting women voters to see Trump double down on sort of the angry white male vote because you know we have enough problems. The Republican Party has enough problems already being seen as the angry white male party. And you know, in 2012 we had some real challenges. We had some high-profile gaffes. You know, from Senator Todd Akin saying legitimate rape to Richard Murdoch in Indiana talking about pregnancy resulting from rape being part of God's will. So. I feel like in 2014, we had really gone forward. We had made a lot of progress. There were no gaffes. Um, our firm was working with six Senate uh, races, and we won all of them. The Republicans took back the Senate. I feel like we had really advanced the ball. Now I feel like we're back on the one-yard line um, and and that we've doubled down on being the party of the angry white male. Yeah, I mean, uh, so – you know, what could Republicans do next? I mean, I guess there are a couple different steps, right? The first is what do down ballot races do? What what do Republicans, you know, whatever's happening now for the governor's race and the Senate race in Indiana or in other more consistently battleground states like in Pennsylvania and Ohio and New Hampshire and Colorado, what can these Republicans do to kind of step aside from Trump's shadow, focus on expanding the tent, focus on reaching out to women, focus on reaching out to non-whites or younger voters. And what would you recommend in terms of what you see in the data? What would you recommend they do? Well, the one good thing, you know, and we're we're active, um, you know, in a lot of these sort of Senate races or down down ballot races, is that. At this point, I mean, uh, and it's early because, you know, all the advertising hasn't really taken effect, you know, attempting to basically tie Trump to everyone who is running on the Republican ticket. But, you know, I think, you know, and it, it, it actually makes me sad because, you know, Donald Trump at the top of the ticket is impacting people that that I care about, you know, people, friends and clients in tough Senate races like Kelly A. in New Hampshire or Rob Portman in Ohio. And both of them, of course, are avoiding the Republican convention, which is smart. And both of them, you know, I think Rob Portman yesterday or today was out doing a, a, a kayak event for wounded warriors. And Kelly Ayotte has been in her home state talking about the opioid crisis and all that she's done in Congress. So that is what they have to do. Um, they have to talk about ways that they are, you know, involved with and advancing issues that people care about um, and that they are not, you know, part of this sort of angry, uh, divisive um, rhetoric that's that's emanating from Trump and, and may, in fact, be emanating this week during the convention. 
Yeah. And so, um, you know, tell us what other trends are you looking for? I mean, are there certain kinds of issues that people should be talking about? It's not simply so much as saying, I'm not going to go to the convention or, you know, I, I don't support Trump. I mean, what else can Republicans be doing to try and, you know, stay true to their conservative values, but still also reach out to some of these other groups and show that they're maybe not the party of Trump or they're, you know, going someplace else in the future? I mean, what do you make of what's uh, of, of the issue landscape? You know, I think Ryan in the House is attempting to sort of set the table with those types of issues. They've come up, I don't remember, four or five issues that they're focusing on, the House uh, Republican Caucus is focusing on. And, and one of those, I think, has to do with poverty. And that's um, sort of an eyebrow raiser, I suppose, in terms of the stereotypical view of Republicans. You know, do you care about people who are poor? Do you care about people who aren't rich? Um, and I think that's very beneficial. We, I think, need to get into the conversation on the issue of college affordability. Um, that's a real concern with people. And there are a lot of options that are very consistent with um, Republican philosophy that, that are short of, you know, everybody getting free college. Um, and, and, you know, people are very open to, like, let's figure this out, whether it's, you know, changing how we accredit universities, changing our definition of a college degree, um, capping tuition, whatever it is, let's let's figure that out. Right. I'm also I'm also of the the mindset, and I speak for myself. I'm not speaking for my partners or anyone else. I'm a big believer in. In 2011, Mitch Daniels said, "You know, let's let's sort of call a truce on social issues, so we can focus on so many of the pressing issues, um, whether it's you know lifting everybody up." out of poverty, giving everybody economic opportunity, race relations, um, education, the debt. I'm sort of a big believer in that. And I would like to see us move towards that. Um, and, um, you know, that's my personal view on on things like that. And, um, you know, really focus on where people are day to day. Yeah. I mean, how do you think a Mitch Daniels or John Kasich convention would look compared to what we've seen so far from the Trump convention? You know, right. I mean, Mitch Daniels and John Kasich are, are similar, and that's why I have I really enjoyed working with both of them because they um, they are all about a positive message, lifting people up. So the message number one wouldn't be angry, hateful, um, you know, trying to, to rile people up. I think it would be a very positive, inclusive uh, message about everybody sharing in prosperity. I think that both of them would be much more positive about America's uh, role in the world and America's future. Um, they would focus a lot on, um, like I said, making sure everybody has a piece of that prosperity. Um, so it would be, a, you know, John Kasich, as you know, um, when he, you know, he ran, he, he basically said, listen, I want to focus on being positive. Here's what I'm for. I don't want to get into name calling. I don't want to get into divisive rhetoric. And Mitch Daniels was like that too. So, so you sound, I don't know, you don't sound particularly optimistic. I mean, how do you feel about Republicans chances this cycle? And what do you think Republic, where do you think Republicans go from here? How do they sort of move beyond Trump past November? I don't. I I think the verdict is out yet on on how our down ballot Republicans will do in these Senate races. I do think that you know I feel optimistic about holding on to many of our um, 
Senate candidates, if not all of them. I, I'm hopeful that that will happen. Unfortunately, I don't feel overly optimistic, um, even beyond, let's say, Trump loses. Um, let's just say that, for example. Um, and, you know, looking ahead, I, personally, um, you know, I don't think the future of the Republican Party rests with like a Ted Cruz or even a Mike Pence. Um, so for me, I, I just feel like, you know, the, the demographics of the Republican Party are changing and they have been changing. And, you know, we're losing uh, college educated suburban voters. We're losing young people and we're becoming the party. The Republicans are becoming the party of sort of non-college educated rural, small town, older white people. And the country, in fact, is becoming just the opposite. So um, I, I think a lot of things will have to change. I think, you know, Trump will have put the party in, in a bit of a hole, quite a big hole. Um, but when I look ahead to 2020, I don't feel personally um, super optimistic, you know, when I look at Ted Cruz or Mike Pence, because I don't feel like they have a a forward looking, you know, positive, inclusive vision either. Um, right. One that speaks to a changing America. Right. And, and what do you think, too, about, you know, the role that gender and, and race are playing in this election? I mean, it's not just about being inclusive, sort of writ large or being positive versus being negative. I mean, you see, you know, really encouraged by the campaign, some very gendered attacks and things that seem, you know, things that would have been unthinkable years ago that you would have seen John McCain, even when people were saying crazy things at his rallies would try to shut down. So when you for example, you know, this Melania issue that came up last night and that, you know, she's uh, she uh, or somebody plagiarized in a Michelle Obama speech. The Republic, the Trump campaign said, well, this comes from the Clinton campaign every time they feel threatened by a woman. And that's such a bizarre gendered attack to me. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. You know, never mind the fact that it's not that none of that came from the Clintons. Let's just put that aside. But, you know, what exactly would Hillary Clinton feel threatened by Melania about, except that there's just some women thing they want to talk about? I mean, there's there's something really, you know, very unseemly and grotesque and retrograde about some of the language. I mean, what do you think about how Republicans get away from that? Right. You know, over a year ago, our firm was was um, asked to do some research on Hillary Clinton. Like, how would Republicans message against Hillary Clinton with the assumption we would have like a normal Republican nominee? So what we did was we sort of uncovered, tried to uncover some research about some nuances about, you know, how to message to women. So, for example, we learned that in a debate, you shouldn't call her Mrs. Clinton or Hillary. You really need to call her Secretary Clinton. And you certainly need to not relitigate, you know, sort of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. So all those things. Those all are that, very good lessons that have not been followed. Right. All those wonderful things we learned, you know, they paid us for this great research. And it's completely out the window, right? Because Donald Trump talks about... Hillary Clinton's voice giving him a headache or Carly Fiorina's face being awful to look at. And could that be the face of a president? I mean, on and on and on. So it's just, it's beyond anything that you could have imagined that, that we could have imagined a year ago. And so, you know, again, coming from the perspective of a partner at Burning Glass, someone who's interested in <sighs> reaching out and expanding to women voters, it's, it's unimaginable that this is the rhetoric and that these are the actions and the, the, the conversation that we're actually dealing with. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, you know, to bring it back to polling, I mean, what do you what do you think are, you know, I guess I should phrase this. So, I mean, do you think this is about how much of this is about representation or women's representation in the Republican Party? That if there were more Republican consultants, Republican advisors, Republican leaders and party operatives, this would be different. Or how much of it is simply the nature of the Republican Party in some way or and how much of it is just, um, you know, is just Trump's hijacked it and then and. This is just an aberration. Um, kind of all of those things. So, you know, Donald Trump is his own crazy, you know, sort of misogynistic entity, in my opinion. Right. So he's he's beyond the pale, over the top, crazy things that he says about women. But, you know, beyond Donald Trump, what what I as a partner of Burning Glass feel like, though, is that our party base basically, you know, had has said with his nomination, you know, as our party's nominee, that they don't care if we say something, you know, if we nominate somebody who is so offensive to women. And that is what I think has been really hard Mm -hmm. for um, me and, you know, my partner, Katie Packer, who, you know, who felt so strongly um, about opposing Donald Trump that she you know, sort of led the the leading super PAC, our principles pack against him. And both of us, we've talked about this. We feel like yeah, it's, she did it's, a really great viral ad, which I mentioned on the show. And I wrote a CNBC piece about it because I loved her ad and I interviewed her and she's I thought she did a great job. Yeah. And and it's interesting. I mean, Katie is a really conservative you know, uh, Republican woman. And and both of us have talked about I'm less conservative, certainly. Um, and we both talked about, do we have a place in a party that, you know, nominates somebody like Donald Trump or doesn't seem to care? You know, in, in 2014, I think we felt like we had a real, um, stake in things and, and, you know, people were seeking us out and, and there was a real interest in, in appealing to women voters and attracting women. And, you know, I think we'll get back to that point, but it's, it's hard to see that pathway, you know, and we all have to be asking ourselves again, as, college-educated women, but also people who've worked in the party for decades, like, is this, is there a role for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a tough conversation to be having with yourself, honestly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you are out circulating in Republican circles and people are talking about this, I mean, what do you think the answer is? Is the answer like, okay, this is just, you know, 2016, it's crazy, you know, and then, and then we'll just get back to normal or is there some real soul searching that maybe there's something else going on in the Republican party that needs to be excised in some way, or is the answer that you leave it in some, or, you know, go someplace else, find another home somehow. Right. Um, you know, I think it depends on the person. I think, um, you know, there's certainly some people who think, you know, you know, uh, what am I, what am I staying for? And, and I was trying to express that, you know, when I look ahead, you know, to 2020, am I staying for someone like Ted Cruz or someone like Mike Pence? Is that a reason to sort of continue to stay involved? Um, other people, you know, but then there's so many people that, you know, like Kelly Ayotte or Rob Portman or John Kasich or, you know, that, that are so good and that you believe in. And so it becomes really difficult. Um, I think there's a lot of soul searching, not just, you know, for Republican women, but, you know, men too, to figure out, 
who are we? Um, a, a lot of things were thrown out the window, you know, with this. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's certainly a conversation worth having. Well, could you just tell us briefly before we wrap up just a little bit about how you got into polling? And I know we've been all we've been saying some pessimistic doom and gloom here, but <laughs> how do you feel about the industry and people going into it? We have a lot of young grad students and young new folks entering the field who want to learn a little bit more about how to become pollsters. Yeah, you know, it's it's like so much in life, which is it wasn't my intention, but it's been a really wonderful thing that I've enjoyed so much. My intention was to be a communications person. So actually I started out, um, well, I started out with the Indiana Republican Party, you know, working on races. And then I came out to Washington and, and actually worked for the National Women's Political Caucus as their press secretary. So that was the direction I was heading. Um, ended up not feeling like it was a very bipartisan organization. So joined the Worthling Group and kind of learned polling um, with the people who now run public opinion strategies. And um, have been working, you know, in this industry for 20, 25 years. And, you know, I really love it. And, and for somebody who, you know, I, I, don't, ha I'm, I don't have a doctorate in statistics. And, and I kind of enjoy the fact that I think um, Barack Obama and now Hillary Clinton's pollster, is it Joel Benenson, um, I think maybe was a drama major. So I think what I think is, is the best about, about this field is it really, for me, it's, it's about people and it's about the stories they're telling through the numbers or in focus groups through what they're telling us. And that's what I love. That's what I really love about it. Well, great. So can you uh, tell folks how to find you, find you on Twitter or find out more about Burning Glass or about Bellwether? Sure. Um, my Twitter handle is cmatthewspolls. Bellwether is, a lot of people think it's spelled like the weather, but it's B-E-L-L-W-E-T-H-E-R, bellwetherresearch.com, and um, Burning Glass Consulting online, both those places, you can find me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christine. We really appreciate it. And uh, Kristen Starr, she couldn't join, but she is in the noisy throes of the queue and uh, couldn't find a, a quiet spot. So, um, But thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. So good to talk to you. Thanks, Margie.